0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we are here with Dr. Marshall Chin, who is the Professor of Healthcare Ethics at the Department of Medicine. His resume is long and esteemed, but worth discussing. Dr. Chin performed many of the key research studies informing how to improve diabetes care and outcomes for many healthcare organizations, including federally qualified health centers that serve vulnerable patient populations. He has in addition performed research studies on high vulnerable populations, including LGBTQ plus people of color. In addition to his clinical and research roles, Dr. Chin is a teacher and a mentor. And he also is a member of the National Academy of Medicine, which is something many of the audience members may not be familiar with, but is an organization that we will discuss in hopes that we can raise awareness about the role the organization plays. So with that, Dr. Chin, welcome.
1: Thanks so much for the kind invitation, Jay.
0: We first reached out to you after the article you wrote, Uncomfortable Truths, came into mainstream and really developed a certain buzz among the readership audience in the healthcare community. The article discusses what COVID-19 has revealed about chronic disease care in America. What's very fascinating about this article is that you begin with an analogy about jumping off the cliff, but, and you quote, It's backing up that gives you discovery. Can you talk a little bit more about why you chose to begin with that analogy and why the backing up is so important to you?
1: Yes. Uh, So about five years ago, my wife and I, we got into improvisational and stand-up comedy. I had given my wife a storytelling class as a a gift and... uh, as we got involved in the theater, we started taking the improv comedy sequence and the stand-up sequence and really loved it. And one of the courses we also took was a sketch comedy writing course. And I was introduced to the work of Keegan-Michael Key, who is a brilliant improvisational uh, comic and, and stand-up uh, performer and and, and uh, sketch writer. And uh, he has is uh, a very thoughtful man. And in his work, he often does insightful social commentary on issues such as race and and class and and inequities. And there's a wonderful interview of him where there's this quote from the very beginning of the article where the the gist of it is that like um, when people think about improv comedy, they think about it as like moving forward, that like you're jumping off a cliff and you gotta figure it out on the way down. Uh, But then he says that what improv comedy really is, is taking a step backward. That is, you look at your environment, you look at your scene partner, you hear what's happening, you gain greater insight, you listen, you, you stop, you take time, you step f- further back, you learn more about the environment. And so, I think in some ways that COVID 19 is like a, a great metaphor for this, in that, like, you know, with the stress the pandemic, we just jumped right in and we, you know, we had to basically, you know, survive and deal with uh, some of the immediate. But when you take the step back, then you realize, boy, you know, there's a lot in the way we have organized our healthcare system that just makes no sense. And it's really not in the interest of patients.
0: Uh, certainly. And you allude to that when you talk about trends, whether the trends we saw over the past two years were pandemic induced trends or meaningful trends in healthcare as a whole. You take that focus of the pandemic and you extrapolate that out. Healthcare at large. When you think about trends, how do you internalize that into your own individual practice?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's like uh, this reality and there's recognition, both at a personal level and then a public level. So, give me, give, give me an example. Uh, this weekend, I, I actually had my first plane trip in over 18 months to Washington, D.C. And I saw for the very first time the National African American Museum, wow. which you haven't seen it. It's, uh, well worth seeing. And one thing you learn from like the history is that uh, issues of, of racism and inequities have existed from the beginning of our country. Yeah, uh, I think what COVID nineteen did though was made more obvious for, for everyone, the general public, individuals. These inequities. I mean, we see differences in the rates of COVID and the rates of more differences in the rates of mortality from COVID across factors such as race and, and class. So it's it's like getting hit by a sledgehammer in terms of just becoming more obvious, even though these issues have have been here again from the birth for our country. So I think in terms of trends, uh, I, part of it I think it's just like um, us learning more, you know, about about health. Our system, our history, and coming to terms with it. You know, and I think a lot of it too, it, it, it's just a, such a striking divide between what healthcare is supposed to do, which is maximizing the health and experience of people in the population, and just how incongruent it is, uh, some of the structures, which as a whole do not support um, holistic care of patients that address medical and social needs and emphasizes things like trust and close relationships between the care team and patients.
0: I like how you phrased trust and close relationships in the context of health experience, because that's one thing that health inequities and our greater understanding of health inequities from societal level has taught us, that healthcare is fundamentally an experiential construct. Your experience in improv led you to understand that the experience and the reflection upon the experience gives you a certain value. Has that translated into some of the research that you've done, some of your analysis on what needs to change in healthcare, the role of experience and in the moment experience?
1: that's a great question. So perhaps like the the number one principle from improv comedy is yes and, meaning (laughs) you, you need to be in the moment, you need to really listen to your partner in the scene, you don't deny the reality. So it's, yes, you you recognize that, and and you build upon that, and and so if you think about like individual patient care or thinking about the healthcare system uh, more generally, it's actually a very good principle, especially patient care. That like, uh, uh you know, this occurs on often in ter- patient surveys that people feel that they they haven't been listened to, that they don't feel that their needs have been met. Uh, they feel that like um, you know, the clinician is embedded in electronic medical record writing their note and you know, not really engaging with them. And so uh, you know, at the heart of, of clinical medicine, um, it really is, is the combination of the interpersonal and the technical. Uh, we tend to value the technical in, in the way we have set up in uh, the reward system in healthcare, uh, but really at, at the base, unless you have that relationship, that trust, that ability to communicate uh, back
0: and forth, Boy, you know, it's an uphill battle. Certainly. Uh, I believe you had mentioned this not in the article itself, but in the reference document, which we can get to, which highlights a concept that you refer to as high quality primary care. You talk about the concept of ratios, virtual, remote, mix of healthcare professionals. You allude to that when you talk about the technical and the interdependent relationships. Do you see optimal healthcare in terms of ratios or is that not an exact analogy for you?
1: Yeah. So uh, the, the issue is like, well, uh, where should we deliver care and what will lead to the best outcomes? And, and one thing about the, the pandemic, as people started doing telehealth, I think a lot of people, uh, patients and, and, and providers realize, you know, there's a fair amount of things we really don't need to have an in person visit for. And for a patient, if they don't need to come in, they can do it by remotely. Well, I mean, it's a lot more convenient. Uh, you know, you're not you know, blowing a half day's worth of, of work or your time. Um, uh, and so uh, right now, the systems really emphasize this care in the hospital, in the clinic, uh, as opposed to what can be done at home or in the community. Um, so the, uh, what we should be doing is thinking about, well, if you have a mix of puzzle pieces, which include clinic visits, uh, it includes like uh, um, telehealth or, or video health, or it can include things like remote monitoring, like you know remotely taking your blood pressure and sending information into the, the office. Um, what's that right mix that will lead to the best outcomes, the best experience, the most convenience, the best access, the, the most efficient costs? And you know, I think everyone would agree that the way it's set up right now is not bad. I mean it's just minimal time has been spent. Thinking about this, whereas this could do this could be really good in terms of uh, both patient experience, um, um, the efficiency of care, the cost of care, um, as well as um, you know one thing that uh, help self for care is having you know multiple touches. So you know it's probably not the greatest thing if I see a patient with diabetes just the three or four times a year in the clinic, and we don't do much outside. You know, but you imagine a system that if it had. The combination of uh, the in-clinic visits, the telephone follow-up, the video health, um, different members of the team uh, playing their role, you're probably going to have like a a more efficient care and then better outcomes.
0: I, I would agree and I think inherent in what you're suggesting is a certain level of customization as per the individual's patients, not just clinical needs but socioeconomic needs. In the article you had mentioned addressing social determinants of health to be particularly important for good outcomes when in contrasting diagnostic studies or tests for lipoprotein cholesterol screenings or glycosylated hemoglobin A1Cs. So do you see healthcare moving into this systems model away from the individual patient encounter?
1: We should be. Uh, A lot of healthcare people uh, understand this and, and patients realize that um, they're going to do best if their medical and social needs are addressed. The, the lever though is we have to change the payment system so it supports and incentivizes this type of work. Uh, sometimes you hear from health organizations, well, you know no margin, no mission, meaning that you know, unless they bring in the dollars, they can't do you know all, all the, the, the good uh, work uh, and all so in some ways, this argument, well, they're just playing by the rules of a current game, which largely still supports mostly volume that, you know, the more care you provide, the more money you get, regardless of like, um, if it makes sense, as opposed to imagine if you have a system that rewards uh, patient outcomes, good patient experience, um, equitable outcomes so that no matter who you are, whether you're rich or poor or, you know, black or white or whatnot, um, you do well. Um, so that's the challenge, because uh, uh, I think the vast majority of providers, clinicians, I think most healthcare systems also, would love to be able to do the right thing in terms of, you know, the equitable care and all. But again, the system is not set up to support and incentivize that.
0: I uh, would agree, and you and I'm quoting you directly. Our healthcare system excels at perpetuating its basic structure and supporting powerful stakeholders who profit from this structure. We talked about systems, but we've never formally defined it. And for the audience, can you help us understand what is a healthcare system as you are researching and analyzing it? What is the definition for you?
1: It's like a great question, Jay. Well, you might think that at the core. So at the core, you have the clinician working with the patient and family or you know the broader healthcare team. Working with uh, you know you the patient and, and uh, family and friends, so that's maybe the center. Around that you have then like the immediate clinic, for example. So in other words, um, there is then a, a a a clinic or a a setup of care in which that clinician works with the patient. So for example, some places are still pretty much the solo clinician working with the individual patient. Uh, more and more so, we're having uh, settings where it's a broader care team. So, you know, there's a nurse, there's a social worker. Some places have community health workers, you know, big difference. If it's like, you know, solo clinician versus if you have a, uh, a robust team with uh, different team members supplying particular expertise. Or, you know, in the clinic, you can mention things like um, the electronic medical record. Um, these can be set up to be in ways that are more and less efficient and conducive to uh, good patient care. Um, uh, beyond that, you have things like um, what affects that clinic? Well, things like um, health insurance plans, um, the people who pay for health care, you know, both government as well as private insurance companies. And you know, the, the rules of that in terms of like um, the contracts that are set up between like, these payers, and the clinics and hospitals, um, that has an effect upon um, what is supported and incentivizes what's paid for, and again, like yeah, you know, as a whole, you know, um, like other businesses that uh, a hospital or clinic will design and prioritize their operations. You know, partly it's the mission in terms of uh, 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 caring for the public, but partly you know this harsh economics of you know what will enable the. Uh, clinic or hospital stay afloat financially. Um, so they're all connected. So, um, you know, I think like as patients, when we come in to see, you know, our, our clinician or a provider, we see that immediate person, but there is this, this wider world, just like, you know, that Keegan-Michael Key, you know, story about you take a step backward and you see this, this wider world, it's this discovery. And you realize, like in a lot of things, systems are very powerful. So they are very powerful policies, regulations, structures that affect then the care and experience you have as a patient when you see your provider.
0: Certainly. Uh, We appreciate the way you contextualize that response, because in many ways, you're alluding to solutions and strategies. And in the article, there's a table, which I would recommend the listening audience to review subsequent to the podcast. It's key components of chronic disease care and strategies that have been reinforced by lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic but the lessons and strategies that you just mentioned and alluded to in this table are also part of a broader working paper, which is the Implementing High-Quality Primary Care, which is coming from the National Academies of the Science, Engineering, and Medicine. And you are actively involved with not just the paper, but with the organization as a whole. Before we jump into the reference content and discuss the details on what you just mentioned, can you tell the audience a little bit more about this organization and what it represents?
1: Yes, so the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine, it's uh, one way to think about it, it's, it's the hall of fame uh, of science and engineering and medicine. Uh, so the, the medical branch each year, a hundred people from over the world are elected each year. And there's some much larger number of people nominated each year, eight to one, 10 to one. Um, so it's very hard to get in uh, and this is a, a, a group I believe it was created at, during um, President Lincoln's administration uh, and it was designed to uh, b- help advise the nation regarding uh, important scientific issues uh, of national importance and so it has it has prided itself as being an organization that is is, is led by the science it's led by the evidence and um, um, they have a very rigorous process when they examine an issue in, in terms of reviewing the evidence, bringing experts, having committee structures, uh, discussion, deliberation, reports. Uh, and so uh, they, they try to be, you know, as much as possible uh, uh, an organization whose uh, statements can be trusted to be based upon the science as opposed to politics or, or other considerations. Certainly. The
0: organization is very highly reputable and many organizations including the leaders at the hospitals that the listening audience likely visits also references when creating community specific protocols. They have an article called and I mentioned this before implementing high quality primary care and the article which Dr. Chin had wrote which discusses the uncomfortable truths is in reference to much of the learnings that come from this article and Dr. Chin when you're reviewing this content. Can you go over the fidelity of the data that went into how this report was created?
1: Yes. So these these reports are downloadable for free if you go to the National Academies of Sciences website. Uh, you know these are like books, like like um, you know, couple hundred page type books, and you'll see like um, in any given chapter there's a, a reference list, and so there'll be you know a long list of of references of the scientific studies that uh, support a given statement. Uh, and so uh, it, 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 they're very well done. It's, it's a combination of the people in the committee and then there's a great staff at the National Academies. And so together these committees uh, do a rigorous review of the evidence and then uh, this uh, robust discussion. Because uh, yeah, you know, I, the whole scientific process, some things, sometimes things are very clear cut. Uh, other times uh, then you have then uh, a more um, um, mixed evidence base, where it, will, it requires then uh, thoughtful discussion in terms of like um, uh, recommendations.
0: Certainly, and this article is this report, rather I apologize, is quite bold in its aspirations in that it's looking to, and what we gather, redefine high quality primary care into this model of a system and a systems of different granularities of for the audience can you maybe give one or two uh, uh minute blurb on what, what is the main focus of the report itself and what it's trying to do for primary care
1: yeah you know it's it's uh it's interesting that like the, the report title it's implementing high quality primary care uh so not is implementing that they had had an early report like 10 years ago and much of the substance of, of what's recommended is very similar. So in some ways, this is not rocket science or, you know, like, um, you know, mysteries of what is, is high quality care. I mean, it's the stuff we've talked about of like, a, there's a close trusting relationship between the care team and the patient. You look at the patient holistically, you address their medical issues, their social issues. The goal is optimizing the patient's quality of life, health, functioning, experience, um, so you know these these have remained the same, and these principles of parametric have, have exist for generations. The challenge, though, has been that like um, you know one could argue that minimal has happened between uh, the report of ten years ago and and now in terms of actually making it a reality in uh, in our country. So there's a, a lot that has to do with the port of like um, well what do we need to do to sort of uh, make it so it's not just an abstract ideal, but it's something that you know everyone in the country will experience when they go to their their care team.
0: Certainly, and the report itself builds off of an initial 1996 report, which unfortunately did not receive as much traction as we would have liked. Can you talk about the impact that these reports have on policymakers at the federal level, both successful and unsuccessful?
1: Yes. So th- th- they always help with education, so that these are always well done reports, and so it helps raise awareness. In terms of policy change, then partly it's like, you know, when there's the alignment, and so that w- when the is there and where there's the political support, uh, and now it's actually, uh, we, we have uh, this window of opportunity that we mentioned like with COVID, people, public is much more um, aware of these issues. Um, um, between COVID and, and uh, George Floyd and all and uh, systemic um, brutality against people of color in, in terms of policing, people realize that this is unacceptable and we need to act. Uh, and uh, so there is this opportunity uh, that the current administration has this as a priority uh, of uh, trying to uh, work for the best possible outcomes uh, for, for all patients, um, and of which then like this particular set of principles of primary care fit in well with that. Uh, So this is actually one of those times in in our history where um, the melding of what we know with where there's the political will, there is this uh, opportunity.
0: I like the way you phrased that in terms of time-sensitive opportunity because like with electronic medical records, the implementation did not take place until the regulatory bodies enacted regulation to support the implementation. You are suggesting in many ways that COVID-19, the growing awareness and recognition that social inequities are related to individual patient healthcare inequities as a almost systemic shock. Is that a, f- a fair way to phrase it in that it's a systemic shock that can help galvanize some of the changes that have been proposed, not just in this report, but from previous reports that this report builds off of?
1: I think so, Jay. That I think you know the vast majority uh, of the people in this country are are well-meaning, good people, and um, some of it is is awareness. And so, and as I mentioned earlier, well, you know, something like racism, you know, has been in our country, you know, since its founding. Um, um, But you know, things like you know George Floyd or things like the pandemic just make it, you know, just starker and and and. um, more experiential for 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 more Americans, um, um, you know. One thing that maybe I've implied, but maybe I'll say it, uh, directly here that like um, is critical for you know listening audience really to have a seat at the table, both in their own care and advocating for what makes sense for them, and you know um, people's roles advocating for a healthcare system, which is centered around the patient as the north star, you know. The goal, meaning to be improving everyone's health and experience, as opposed to you know, the profiting at you know, the bottom line here, um, and this goes then to the things like the you know, support for um, um, policies and systems that that uh, do provide the best possible care for for everyone. Certainly,
0: when you discuss the policy changes and the systemic change that need to take place, you often refer to high level policymakers. High-level regulators, but do you envision change taking place at the medical school or residency level to complement some of the policy suggestion changes in the report?
1: Yes, it's, it's all levels. That like um, uh, we're not going to have the, the the maximum progress unless it's all the levels we talked about: the individual clinician-patient encounter, um, the level of the medical school, the nursing school, or you know the clinic or hospital. And then you know the, the, the macro policy, as you're saying, in terms of like um, legislation, regulation by the Medicare program, Medicaid program, other private health plans and all. Uh, and the other part too is that if there's alignment across these different levels, that's the best. you know like It's interesting when you talk to these different stakeholders, everyone thinks someone else has the power, you know, oh, if it wasn't, you know, if, if the government only, you know, made this this payment policy, the government would say, well, you know, there's only so much we can do unless the health plans, you know, play along with us. And, you know, the clinicians will say, well, you know, I'm doing my hardest, but, you know, the, 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 the these other regulations and payment policies just don't support what we do, you know, and they're all right, you know, that, that everyone has like a piece of the puzzle. And if you can align, and there are some current efforts that are trying to start doing this, um, that's what's going to lead to the the um, most powerful effect. And a again, again, like why it's so important that um, patients and communities are at the table. You know, both for the insights that patients and communities provide, as well as I think like patients and communities keep all the stakeholders honest. You know, keep the eye on the prize of you know it should be, you know, the patient and communities, which you know um, you're maximizing you know their health and all, as opposed to um, what can be, um, you know, other self-interests.
0: Now, we like the use of the phrase alignment because that's very much relevant in today's healthcare, where we're starting to understand how broad policy changes affect the individual just as much as the individual affects broad policy changes. In the report, they distinguish systems in terms of macro, meso, and micro, almost as if they were different layers of systems superimposed build upon each other. You seem to understand that as a form of alignment at all levels. Can you help us understand for those who wanna maybe get into the more granular details of systemic change, why is it appropriate to begin by looking at those three levels?
1: Mm -hmm. I just thought of another sort of like a metaphor here, Jay. So, you know, the the Russian eggs where there's like- Nesting eggs, yeah. Nesting eggs, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, they're all connected um they got to be the right size fit so that the, the different two ends fit together and, and um then you have a nice hole and so um uh it's, it's sort of the things we've talked about of how like um, it, 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 each level is important um you know the heart again is like the clinician patient uh relationship and that interaction but the systems around them are just so powerful in terms of what's being done so for example. If um, you know your uh, clinician or healthcare provider is working on our system, where they get fifteen minutes with you, you know, or ten minutes with you, you know, um, that's different than if they get twenty minutes or thirty minutes if it's like yeah. a more complicated problem or or beyond, you know, or you know, um, if the system is set up in a way that uh, it encourages a more robust support system of the overall team, so you know, there's a social worker, there's a health educator. There's maybe a community health worker or someone helps with transportation and you know whatnot um that's you know um, as a clinician that that's a much more um um pleasant environment to work in i mean here some clinicians saying that like um it's just so frustrating if, if the, uh, you know that the, if the patient and the clinician know what the problem is but the system is not set up to support uh, addressing what they need yeah. um and then of course then like uh, the the macro part um, the money is very, such a, a powerful driver of what happens in, in healthcare um, you know, it's a big business and uh, the money is big and um, boy you know, the more we can again uh, create it such that the incentives are such that you know uh, it's in people's interest everyone's interest to keep people healthy keeping people out of the hospital um, maximize patient experience um, uh, and care and outcomes um, maximize convenience. You know, the point about like trying to do more things at home, when, when possible. Boy, you know, um, there's just so much we could do to improve our system.
0: The opportunity is boundless, no doubt. I want to reference for the audience a specific table, uh, and I know you don't have it in front of you, so I'll just kind of articulate it. Uh, it's figure one, one in the um, report itself, where they're showing a graph, it's a bar graph, a volume of those who seek medical care relative to the expenditures. And the, graph is, starking, is very stark in the sense that the disparity between the volume of those who seek medical care relative to the expenditures is very incongruent. And essentially what you're suggesting is that there needs to be a better alignment between the volume of those seeking care relative to the expenditures of that particular care. And that you present as an opportunity. But when you look at it at a granular level, like what you had mentioned, the system doesn't support that those opportunities almost become opportunity costs. So when you're trying to create change at a very granular level, often what is an opportunity seems to be a point of conflict. Do you ever experience that when you're trying to make meaningful change and actually implement those changes? Or you feel that there's a right way to do that to overcome that? hmm.
1: I think like uh, people can do demonstration projects for a time-limited period of time, mm-hmm. and oftentimes health organizations uh, will, will support that in the short term. Ultimately, health organizations want a business case for it to be sustainable and for them to do more permanent investments. Your question made me think of a couple of things, Jay. One was this issue of tailoring care to the individual patient. So the, the technical term here is risk stratify. So the idea may be that, you know, you may have a relatively healthy person. You may have someone that has, you know, very severe disease that needs more attention. They need more visits. They need more home follow-up. They need um, uh, close work with um, the physician, nurse, social worker and all. Um, so one is that part. So it's, it's, it's just, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, and it's not just a one-size-fits-all but, you know, that overall dollar amount, you know, the, the more severely a person is probably going to be more costly, you know, and, and more resources should be allocated to that person to get to the best possible outcome, Whereas a really health, relatively healthy person uh, would need less resources. Um, the other thing uh, you made me think of, too, is that, well, how do you divide the overall budget, you know? Or again, like our, our current system where uh, the big bucks go are things like surgeries, procedures, uh, medications, devices, uh, and those all have an, an important role. But what's grossly um, undervalued, uh, under-reimbursed are uh, things like the things that basically take human touch in, in um, time. You know, um, the, the coaching, the education, the, the working with a patient on helping them manage their 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 illness. Um, this, I have it like in the New England Journal of Medicine paper. This uh, recommendation about the need to level the playing field regarding reimbursement—they're um, all important, but you know—you um, uh, gotta—you gotta do the basic foundational things regarding the, the, the interaction with patients. I, I give this football analogy, so I also, you know, uh, follow the NFL pretty closely. And um, um, uh, there's um, this analogy of like, like um, in football, it's the quarterbacks and the wide receivers that get all the glory, the touchdowns. Yeah. Um, but really, the um, smart teams, they invest in their lines, their offensive linemen, the defensive linemen, uh, the meat and potatoes guys. So, you, if For those who watched the Super Bowl last year, I think Patrick Mahomes is one of the best, if not the best quarterback uh, living today. But he spent most of the Super Bowl running around for his life because his lines let him down. And so, you know, they got crushed by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So you got to have a you got to have meat and potatoes um, as well as, um, you know, the the, um, you know, the the glory, the glory
0: folks. How much of a responsibility do patients have to be active in this process?
1: Yeah, well, you know, my advice to patients is to try to be as active as possible. Um, That you know yourself the best, you know your health, you know your body, you know your situation the best. And, you know, clinicians want to work with you and the more information they have with you and the more it is sort of this so-called shared decision-making process, I think that maximizes the chance that there's a good outcome. Um, sometimes people, you know, are sort of intimidated going to the um, uh, doctor's office. This, you know, this hierarchy, this power imbalance. Um, you know, the old model was the old paternalistic doctor knows best model. That's out the window now. And so, uh, you know, I think there really is very much this sort of uh, there there is like a, as a whole and should be you know the, the shared decision making model for many different things. There'll be times where the clinician will says, you know, hey, you know, I really think you should do this. So something like getting a COVID vaccination. Well, you know, it's a discussion process, but you know, it's very clear cut. You know, evidence is everyone should have this. You know, COVID vaccination. There are other situations where it really is sort of like a well, dealer's choice, and you know, very much sort of a patient preference call. Uh, but having this is where it gets back to like the point about trustworthy relationships, good communication, um, to be able to engage in this type of shared decision making. Yes, so that really is the core of everything else.
0: No, uh, I like how you phrase that. Shared decision making is the core of everything else, and in the article and in the report itself, there's always this element of empowering patients, which is at the center of the systemic change. So I think is extremely important. Uh, Dr. Chen, I know that your time is very valuable, so I don't want to take too much of it. But if we had to leave with one nugget of wisdom one sense of learning that we wanted to get, not just from this uh, report, or not just from your article, but just kind of from your experience as a whole, What would you like to lead the audience with? our
1: Our North Star goal should be optimizing the health and experience of all persons in this country, you know, regardless of their rich or poor, black, white, Latinx, Asian American, American, Indian, Uh, no matter if you're rural or you're urban and I think the, the the public understands and values that that everyone should have a fair and just opportunity for the best possible health and so that needs to be the the north star for all of us optimal patient outcomes optimal experience including for our most marginalized populations and for the listening audience here the major roles you can have is like being at the table, speaking up both for your own health, you know, you know your health, you know your body the best, you know your experience, and then be at the table as we have as a nation discussions about how our healthcare system should be structured, what kind of policies we should have to try to optimize the health of all, because right now the system doesn't do it. Um, But my my sense is that like, uh, again, there is this window of opportunity now, and the more that the public insists that the North Star should be optimizing the health experience and outcomes of all people, you know, we can get there.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Marshall Chin. I really appreciate your time. And again, Dr. Marshall Chin, author of Uncomfortable Truths What COVID-19 Has Revealed About Chronic Disease Care in America, reported in the New England Journal of Medicine. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Chin.
1: Thanks very much, Jay.
0: Have a good day.